Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show coming at you from Bore Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. My guest today is Richard Samelka. Richard is an MD who was a tenured full professor at UNC for 18 years and a tenured faculty for 24. I looked through the list of articles that he's published. It's an enormous list. I'm not going to try to add them all up. Let's just say it is more than impressive. Richard, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you very much for having me on your on your show. It's great to have you here. I wanted to talk to you about a topic that was referred to me from someone else, actually someone within the radio station who had a, a direct connection with it. And this may seem like an odd choice of topics for my particular show, but I think as we get into it, maybe it'll become apparent why we're talking about that. Your specialty is radiology, is that correct? That's correct, yes. And within the field of radiology, there's one particular topic that seems to be uh, worth talking about, well, probably many worth talking about. The, the one I want to start with is gadolinium. Maybe you could start us off by telling the listeners what that is, what it has to do with radiology, and then maybe how you got involved with the uh, controversy over a uh, over it. Okay. Now, Matt, as much as possible through the course of our, our um, conversation, I plan to keep um, points clear to uh, a general audience. So I may make some shortcuts, but my focus on making it as clear as possible. That'd be great. And just for the, so the listeners know, um, I have no medical or biological background whatsoever, so if anything confuses me, I will jump in as well here and, and try to get uh, clarification. So to start more or less from the beginning, um, I got into radiology, um, and when I got into radiology, I was interested in um, safety. So at the time, which takes us back to 1988, the newest technology available was magnetic resonance imaging, was a new kid on the block. And the selling point of magnetic resonance imaging is that it did not use ionizing radiation. And what you may also not know is that ionizing radiation can cause cancer. So magnetic resonance imaging came on as the, if you like, the safe kid on the block. So that may be very interesting from the start of my training. And... Um, it turns out that images are a little bit better if they're given a contrast agent, which many people refer to as a dye, uh, that contains gadolinium. And gadolinium is a heavy metal. Like all heavy metals, if it is on its own, uh, it is toxic. And that's why it has always been bound to a chelate, so to another um, molecular structure and the concept of a chelate is the one binds the other. So if you like, the chelate, and chelate is from claw in the Greek, grabs onto the gadolinium to keep it safe. So um, 
so what you you have is this other molecule. If I understand this right, that add, is added to this heavy metal, which by itself is toxic. And then when you add this other thing to gadolinium, it it makes that gadolinium non-reactive, so that it, it can go through the body without doing harm. Is that the idea? That's basically the idea. And I'll tell you, you know, as a radiologist for the majority of my time. And gadolinium came on the market around 1990 in the U.S. And for many years, all of us radiologists thought of gadolinium as like water, to be honest. We thought it was as safe as water. And then 2006 came along, and we realized that gadolinium can be toxic for patients who've got renal failure. So that's what we realized in 2006. But the concept at the time was, well, if you didn't have renal failure then gadolinium is still as safe as water. So it turns out, and it shouldn't surprise anyone, and I think the easiest way to think of why people would react to gadolinium, think of it that you are injecting into your body, you're having injected into your body something that's a foreign particle. What our immune system does with all foreign particles is react to them. So it should come as no surprise that if we get injected into our bodies, a foreign particle, a gadolinium uh, chelate, the whole entire thing, that we're going to react to it. So I learned, and actually the patient that you're familiar with turns out to be my alpha patient. If you like my eureka moment, that some people with normal kidneys will react intensely to the presence of gadolinium in their body. Great majority don't, but some do. So in fact, my first patient, I vaguely recall receiving emails to me as the director of MR services at UNC at the time, I am burning, I am burning up. I didn't know how to handle it and um, spoke to our risk management about it. They told me, don't speak to the patient. And of course, what I did do is I spoke to the patient, right? So I spoke to the patient, and then in our hospital, a very senior member of the School of Medicine came to me and said, you know, about four years ago, I had an MR of my kidneys. You brought me into your reading room, and you told me that it was perfectly safe. Two weeks after I had that study, I was on the plane with my husband going to Europe, and I had a pain in my arms that felt someone as taking a knife and cutting through my arms. So I had my first patient who said, I'm burning up. This was a third patient. And, you know, there are people who have a number of different issues, and, and you're never really sure if you don't know them. So um, when I heard from a doctor this story about myself, I told her I, it was safe. It turns out she got very sick and remained sick. I took it onto, onto myself. I was not going to ignore it. So I'm going to think, well, you know, it's rare. I never heard about it before, you know, whatever. I looked into it. So I came up with a full set of diagnostic criteria for this condition, which I've termed gadolinium deposition disease. Beyond that, we did extensive laboratory work with Stanford University looking at the cytokine response. And the other thing that I did... What are cytokines? Oh, cytokines are a um, 
product that your immune cells produce to do a few things. Most of them we think of in terms of causing inflammation. And a lot of discussion of cytokines actually is, has part of the COVID story as well. But cytokines can both cause inflammation, but they can also calm down inflammation. So it turns out that patients with, and I, my um, theory, and I'm certain I'm correct, is that gadolinium deposition disease, and just for brevity, I'll call it GDD as we move forward, is a genetic disease. And some people just, when their immune cells see gadolinium moving through their vascular system, and when it's attached into the body, they will react with intense inflammation. And those are inflammatory or pro-inflammatory cytokines. A fairly small number of people have that, but the point is they get it. And we should do something about it. So I also came up with an effective treatment, the most logical and effective treatment. And if I can just step back for a minute to talk about the disease. And again, you know, thinking of the lay person, but where most patients still to this day are running into problems that physicians don't believe them because they say, well, your kidney function is normal. The people who get into problems with gadolinium have poor kidneys. Your kidneys are normal. You cannot have this disease. Maybe you've got some psychiatric illness. Maybe it's something else. But this is how I looked at it, and it's something that one could pose to your audience. I, I sort of describe it as, you know, you can mention these things to a 10-year-old child, and I wonder, well, why don't physicians understand this if a 10-year-old child would? This is basically it. You're lying in a magnet. You get this fluid injected into you. Immediately afterwards, you're intensely sick. And the classic symptoms, uh, Matt, I'd like to describe, are intense burning, like my first patient told me about, uh, intense, boring pain, much like the senior doctor was telling him about. Of So it's like somebody stabbing a screwdriver into your rib, that kind of pain. Or they get brain fog and uh, muscle fasciculation, so twi twitching of your muscles, are the most common. Vision problems, hearing also very problem, but then like any systemic disease that you can think of that goes throughout the body, um, basically any organ system is involved. So the point is, getting back to the patient in the MR reading room, and this happens to maybe 60% or so of the patients. They're in there. 60% get a negative reaction or uh, so, something no. else? Sorry, sorry. Um, about one in 10,000 people get this reaction to begin with. So not common, mm -hmm. but... But, but over over a very large population who gets that is the, my point. Uh, the thing. And I'm, I'm talking with Richard uh, Samelka here on Keys Talk FM. He is an MD with a specialization in radiology. And we're, we're talking about a gadolinium, which is a heavy metal that is injected in the body to during, uh, during an MRI or before an MRI in order to make the contrast better on the images. Uh, here, go ahead with what you were saying about the, uh, the incidence. So the incidence is rare, but interestingly, we've had to think of the same concepts of a rare incident, but because the population is so large, the number of people involved actually is quite large. It's very much like COVID. You know, not many people get extremely sick, but if you think of a population of millions, 
then there ends up being 3,000 people a day dying of it, right? The same concept of this. There's something like 20 million gadolinium injections done every year in the U.S., at least. So when you think about that, if it's one in 10,000 who get very sick from it, that's a sizable number. Those are now in the thousands, right? So, um, so the, the point is, the 60% I was talking about are when it presents. Most of them, in, in my criteria, I say that they have to present within a month of getting the gadolinium injection that they get these symptoms. But about 60% of the total, actually, while they're in the magnet, they get those symptoms. So the, the point is, if you have symptoms immediately after getting something, what not the logical thing that the thing that you just got is the thing that made you sick? And that's what I find so so remarkable that most I people think that, yeah, I, I, would not put that together. Most physicians, mm-hmm. now the patients know that. They know that the gadolinium made them sick. But the many of the healthcare workers say, oh, can't be that because your kidneys are, are 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 normal. No, just drink some water, you'll be fine. I I see this as a broader problem with essentially at a large scale a failure of epistemology in our uh, culture. We seem to have had our heads broken, uh, some kind of brain damage done by the idea that anecdotes aren't data and that you can't. Uh, look at an individual thing that's happened and then decide that that's that's really important. I think in general, this is something that I wrote about years ago on statisticsblog.com under an article about uh, dumb articles, uh, dumb arguments by smart people. I'll I'll link to that in the show notes. uh, And a reminder for everyone, that's at mattasher.com slash 2022 for this episode. And um, so we we think that, you know, we've been taught that correlation is not causation and that anecdotes don't don't matter. Those things are, the the first one is of course true, but often irrelevant. And the second one um, is, is just absolutely false. The example I use in that article is that, you know, if you stop at three stoplights because it turns red right as you arrive and then you get a headache, then, you know, that's probably just a random nothing. But if you get a you know a rare brain disease after a kuru, I think it's called after eating another human being, well, maybe that's worth checking into. What what all the factors surrounding the anecdote matter? How rare is the underlying condition? How soon after the thing? Is there a dose response? There's a whole host of complexities in terms of teasing out whether the particular thing that happened is related to the thing that uh, just happened to you. And I think that at a a broad level, we have a really hard time understanding that this is not a a binary. Anecdotes matter. It's just a question of how much do they matter. And the only way to find that out is to look for patterns, is to look at the underlying circumstances, is to look at how rare these conditions are and so forth. No, that's that's exactly correct. And and carrying on with, with your discussion on this point, when anecdotes add up and you put them in a paper, as I've done, then, you know, it strengthens the concept if there's a series of these individuals and it's all the same circumstance, then you kind of have to think, well, it's probably correct. And so 
I'll be honest. One of the things that I found uh, remarkable in this situation is that up until I um, became aware of it and started writing on the subject, and I've written 15 or 16 peer-reviewed articles in major journals, so it's not like the information is not available to a physician um, uh, investigating why is this patient complaining immediately after a contrast agent. But before that, I hate to admit this, but I've written probably more articles on the value of gadolinium than anybody else. And just as a prop so that the audience doesn't think I'm just saying it off the top of my head, this is about the seventh book on this subject that I have written on abdominal pelvic. Uh, that, for the folks listening, is a, is a book titled uh, Abdominal Pelvic MRI. Yes. And... In this book, it basically describes the value of giving gadolinium. So I would think that colleagues of mine would think, well, I'm not going to take everything I've done in 24 years of my career and drop it on the ground and say it's all trash, right? No. But at the same time, I thought, well, geez, if the person who's written the most about the gadolinium story and the value of gadolinium starts writing, hey, wait a minute, there are some people who get sick from it, would sort of think, well, you know, this is sort of arguing exact opposite of what he's done his career. Maybe it's believable, you know? So it's been a bit of a struggle and amazing to me that it's been a struggle to get patients the recognition. Because where I've had problems, and this is, Matt, I think a very, there's a few very important points to stress in this. One of which is most people, if they get um, one dose of gadolinium in injection and never get another one afterwards, they are, they can be perfectly fine. Many of them can recover on their own without treatment. But oftentimes what's happened is they get this strange neurological symptoms after they get this injection. And then what do we do? But we give them another gadolinium injection to sig figure out what's wrong with them and then more. And then I have patients who've had 30 or more injections, most of them, because they have gadolinium deposition disease, the more injections, the more untreatable they become. And that's that's a shameful thing that has to stop. I, I think that, well, we'll have to pick this up after the break, but I think that that's one of the most important things to look at that we see happening sometimes in medicine and more broadly in life in general, is that we, we've created a problem and it might be a minor problem. And then as we go about trying to figure out how to solve that problem, we uh, unfortunately sometimes make it much worse. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking with Richard Samelka. He is a doctor, an MD, who is a full-tenured professor at UNC for 18 years and the author of a large number of articles, many of them about uh, gadolinium, and, uh, which is uh, used in MRI. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about how sometimes it happens that when one tries to solve a problem, one ends up making it worse. And we were talking about that in the context of this, uh, this, this thing, this heavy metal. How is it that, the, that this happened and people didn't recognize that, oh, we're just making this worse? 
Well, it's a puzzle to me that that should happen. But unfortunately, it's maybe it's human nature uh, that we sort of revert to things that we think are the best and more accurate of finding out what the problem is. So if somebody has a neurological problem, you think, well, maybe we'll use the best imaging modality to look at the brain. So we'll use an MRI and we'll give gadolinium, which makes it more accurate. And it's difficult to understand that they do not piece together that each time they give the gadolinium injection, the patient complains of more symptoms until, you know, the tragedy is it becomes essentially untreatable. Very early on, and if I could talk a little bit about the treatment, which is, again, the most logical approach that even certainly your general audience, but I like to think of it if a 10-year-old child could think it's logical, then, hey, you know, it's logical. The treatment for gadolinium deposition disease. Now, the unfortunate thing about the gadolinium is that in everyone, some of it is left behind. In everyone, some gadolinium is left behind, and it generally is in the bones and skin, but also gets left behind in the brain and all other organs. And part of it is the host response to dealing with something that's dangerous to it. It puts it into places that it protects the organ. So it puts it into the bone and puts it into the skin. And that's why skin burning and bone pain is so common, because you have immune cells sitting right beside where the gadolinium is and reacting, flaring to it. So the point is that gadolinium is left in your body. So the obvious question is, well, if gadolinium is in my body and it's making me sick, how am I going to treat it? Should I treat it with drugs used in fibromyalgia to decrease the symptoms? Or should the primary treatment be to remove the gadolinium? Is that the primary treatment, mm -hmm. right? So we developed approach that we center it on, you know, if gadolinium is making you sick, hey, let's get the gadolinium out. Because the problem now with healthcare is that we oftentimes tackle individual symptoms that relate to the specialty that we have, which in medicine we refer to as sort of siloed thinking, that if you go to see a neurologist, they focus on the neurological things and not on the fact that your intestines aren't working at all. So they think, well, let's solve this by giving a drug that will work for fibromyalgia, but it doesn't necessarily solve the whole package. So the point being, if you get the gadolinium out, it solves all of the issues. And the first thing to do is get all the gadolinium out as best as you can. Now, I don't think you ever get it all out, but you get enough of it out that you're no longer sick. And your immune system, simply, you want your immune system to ignore what's left. So that's basically what we've developed. But there are also physicians that say, well, chelation is dangerous. And my response to that is, what data do you have to say that it's dangerous, other than you just saying that it's dangerous, what data? It's the only data that I'm aware of that's been in the peer-reviewed literature on how we do what we call then chelations therapy, which is injecting a ligand, which is kind of the same thing that the gadolinium is attached to to begin with, a little molecule that then grabs the gadolinium again, brings it back into the circulation, and then 
goes through your kidneys and out. So you send the send the little claws into your body, like maybe a more effective version of that arcade game where it comes down and grabs the little plushie, um, and then surrounds it and and allows it to then pass through the body without doing harm. Uh, but and and then the assumption is that this agent, this uh, chelation agent, will find the right molecules and bind to them. Right. And and that you know that's again getting now technical. Um, okay. Let let's bring it let's bring it back out of the technical for a moment because one of the things that's interesting to me about this at the broader level is thinking about uh, the history of medical interventions and that one of the things that people did before we had the modern concept of of medical science was just to take people away from whatever context they were in, go live in the desert for a while to cure your tuberculosis, go away to a uh, sanatorium, things that in some ways might look primitive, but as I think about it, one of the things that that does is takes them away from whatever context that they're in that may be damaging them. So you spoke about people using more gadolinium in an MRI to try to discover what was wrong with them when it was the gadolinium. It, it seems like there there may be some wisdom in that idea that if you can't figure out what's wrong with a person, just go away right. and completely right. change their diet, their environment, the air they breathe even, and see what happens. That, that's exactly correct. And, and with the gadolinium story, um, that's why I say the first treatment for gadolinium is never get another gadolinium injection again. That's our first treatment. No matter what anybody, I say, even if I tell you to get another gadolinium injection again, don't get it. Never get another gadolinium injection again. If you do that, it actually solves most of the cases of one-time injections. It's really the ones that get multiple injections that are a problem, and it's a tragedy. And so when I see these people, again, Matt, when I see patients like this that are, I mean, some of these people are bedridden. Many of them have no money, are bedridden at home. On top of it, many of their families don't believe them because their doctors said they can't have gadolinium toxicity because their kidneys are normal. So, Matt, it breaks my heart. And I don't think we've got enough to talk about without uh, talking about insurance. But that it's not covered is incredible, that it's not covered by insurance. Um, but it's the way of our American healthcare system. Insurance companies cover things that that they feel have enough documentation, if you like, that it should be used. But as you know, I mean, that's also a little bit um, self-serving. You know? So the point is, I find it devastating. So one of the things that drives me in this whole thing is I think of these people who are deathly sick and their families and their doctors have told them no, it's not gadolinium. It's something else. You have lupus or you have conversion therapy and, you know, psychiatry. You've got a psychiatric illness. And there are people to this day that are locked up in psych- psychiatric wards because of this disease. There are, and, you know, I, I tell, you know, patients ask me, well, you know, what can you, why aren't you doing more to, to help? And I tell them, well, listen, I've written 15 peer reviewed articles on this subject. NSF, which is gadolinium toxicity in people renal failure, only two articles were written, and it was believed that it was real. This is NSF as in the National Science Foundation? No, sorry. Or is sorry. a different <laughs> it's a different. That's one of the problems with these acronyms. It's nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. 
And that is the, um, that's a disease. And one of the problems with people with normal uh, kidney that they've um, fallen into is that the original literature said only people with chronic renal failure get sick from gadolinium. And that's the mantra that many physicians to this day use that, well, you can't be sick from gadolinium because your kidneys are normal. You see back here, uh, only patients with chronic renal failure get sick. This, it's very interesting to me, and I think we definitely are seeing this right now in the era that we're in, one of the other ways in which we seem to be epistemologically damaged is that we have a really hard time updating our priors. New information comes in, and whatever narrative has been laid down about the right way to think about a particular subject, whether it has to do with really anything from politics to medicine to diet, it it's very hard to dislodge the old conceptions with new data and new information. Um, people, if especially if people have a strong prior belief, the new information comes in, and if it contradicts that, what they often do is say, well, that doesn't fit, and therefore something about it is wrong. Not that your model is wrong, uh, but that 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 new bit of information, you know, if it doesn't fit in the box that we've constructed for it, well, it must go in some other box. Something is wrong with that. It's just an anecdote, whatever it is. Uh, though I actually want to talk about something similar in terms of this, which is that we, uh, you know, th there is a reason that this is used, that gadolinium is used in these MRIs. And I think that's another thing that we have a hard time with, which is that this is a, a, a trade-off. Um, I think that what is the Hippocratic Oath? First, do no harm. I think it's worth noting that that's impossible, right? Like, or put it in another way, if if that was revised as first do nothing that's risky, well, everything is risky, right? Right. But uh, Matt, if I can continue on your, um, mm -hmm. on your uh, uh, discussion of quotations, one of the quotations that I like on this subject is what Sir William Osler would have said, or I think around 1910, where he said, Doctors, listen to your patients. They're telling you the diagnosis. Then you couple that with primum non nocere. You would think that in the modern era, we would understand that. But tragically, one of the problems in modern medicine is quite often the patient-physician relationship is adversarial because of medical legal issues. So I think one of the things, unfortunately, that, and this would include me, doctors think about is I really don't want to get sued, you know? So that's why we, for instance, do another thing that I've written a lot on, which is do way too many imaging studies, which can be harmful, even if it's not with gadolinium. But we just don't want to get sued. So in some ways, I think part of the block is recognizing that you have done this, caused them to be sick because you've ordered them or given them gadolinium, sets you up for a legal case. So rather than thinking about the patients uh, quite often uh, and the articles written that contest, you know, the subject of gadolinium deposition disease really focus on the legal aspects. But I ask myself as I read these articles, well, what about the patients? You know, they're not our enemies. We've made them sick. Let's do something about them. And there's a tendency then to anybody who's a problem, 
to push them away. A lot of patients have said, you know, they've gone to doctor's offices, they've told them their diagnosis, or what they believe happened, they got sick from gadolinium. Their doctor tells them, get out, you know. And, and all of this is just, to me, mind-boggling. Now, how to unwind that, I don't know. I do not know how to unwind that, but I do know that uh, what I do know is this disease. And I think, as, as you um, do, Matt, is you you extend this to other similar, because this is not just gadolinium. This is many other medications, very similar, sort of denying that this can be an issue. And I don't want to get into this, really. But in some ways, vaccines, there is some logic to be hesitant about vaccines. But if you deny that there can be problems with vaccines, then you deny any research that can be done on it. So in the same way, if you deny that you can be sick from gadolinium, then it's not something you can get funding to research because it's a long entity. And my view is that, hey, you know, something is wrong here. Some people really are reacting to gadolinium. Some people really are reacting to vaccines. Rather than just sort of blankets saying that they're all crazy, instead think, well, okay, let's figure out what is wrong here. Let's spend some money to figure out what is wrong with this? What is wrong with gadolinium? What's wrong with, you know, what's happening with these patients? So I've taken it upon myself to basically fund all that research on my own. I can't wait for, you know, uh, funding or ag agencies that won't fund it because it's a not recognized problem, you know? I think one of the issues, it, and uh, certainly not exclusive to the medical community, but uh, but definitely a part of it is that any new thing comes along and it seems to be effective, and then there's a tendency, if it's not immediately clear that it has negative side effects, to rush into using that. I'm using this. It seems to be effective for my patients. Why don't we just keep using it? Why don't we use it on everybody and so forth? And when we get back from the break, I'm actually going to tell the story of um, a medicine that I took for a period of time until I realized that it was nuts for me to be taking it as maybe an example of where doctors were a little bit too cavalier about just recommending a particular treatment for an indefinite period of time. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keystalk FM. I am talking with Richard Samelka. He is a doctor who has worked for a long time in the field of radiology. And I had promised before the break that I would tell the story of a medical in intervention to help me that at some point I realized was probably a very bad idea. And that had to do with heartburn. I was having issues with heartburn. And after a single five to 10 minute visit with a doctor, they recommended uh, something called Nexium, which was extraordinarily effective uh, for me for a while. And when I was in there in that very short visit, uh, I asked, well, you know, how long do I take this for? And the answer was, oh, you just keep taking it. Um, and that kind of made me 
um, scratch my head a little bit at the time, and I asked about side effects, long-term issues, and the answer is, oh, no, we, we don't have any evidence of that. It's all good. Uh, some years later, I rethought the idea that this should be something I should be taking forever um, and then did wean myself off it with a different doctor helping out and doing all of the tests. And if, uh, if if you're in the audience and they ever say that uh, you have to do an endoscopy and they offer you a sedative, take it. Uh, don't do what I did and refuse the sedative. Uh, but at any rate, I did eventually in a, a, a very rough uh, couple months wean myself off it and everything is fine now. But that kind of well, we have a, a solution to this problem. This is the solution. Seems fine. Can't think of any reason why there'd be long-term side effects, so just go ahead with it. That seems to be fairly common in the history of medicine, including with this kind of miracle heavy metal gadolidium that we're talking about that makes the uh, the contrast in MRIs kind of pop so that your imaging is more readable. Matt, if I'd like to to add to that. And it's funny how, and I think you, um, you prefaced the discussion that kind of everything relates to everything else. But that's certainly also a subject with the gadolinium story because many patients are out there with a diagnosis of fibromyalgia who actually have this disease. But, you know, if fibromyalgia came on immediately after getting the gadolinium agent, maybe it's gadolinium and not fibromyalgia. Because the problem with fibromyalgia is that you're put on drugs like Lyrica, which is kind of okay, but for the rest of your life. And our treatment with gadolinium is just, you know, get the gadolinium out. Maybe just five treatments for people who've had just uh, one injection, and that's it. No long-term drugs of any kind, because I'm of the same opinion as you, and I think the logical opinion, that you don't want to be on drugs necessarily for the rest of your life. You know, maybe for the short term that something's going on, but to think that there's going to be no problems if you're on something for the rest of your life, um, it's kind of not, not likely. Everything has side effects. Right. I want to shift over a little bit here and talk about um, some, I guess, uh, another doctor, not yourself. You are currently or have blown the whistle on a particular practice of someone there at UNC. Is that right? Uh, yes, th that's, that's correct. Um, now, this is if, uh, about five years ago now um, that I was informed by the program director of our department in charge of the residence that when he was junior, um, a doctor in interventional radiology came to work drunk. He went to the chairman, told the chairman that this doctor is drunk and the chairman didn't do anything, let him still operate drunk. When I heard that, and again, it's like the story is of gadolinium, that's it's not acceptable. It's unethical. You, you, this doesn't. This is not fine anywhere in the U.S. It's not fine anywhere in the world. So um, I brought it up to the dean's office after there was another complaint, another <laughs> misconduct by somebody else. So to make the whole story short, 
um, they figured out a way to fire me on a charge which is so trivial and so bogus. It's actually kind of funny. So, you know, I actually have to myself see the humor in the situations because um, otherwise, you know, I think one would drive oneself crazy. But uh, that's probably something for a, another time, the discussion. But basically, the point is that, um, and where this is relevant, and I think it really, again, has national implications, I am probably the only medical doctor whistleblower that spoke up about medical misconduct. Now, your, your audience would be well aware of the number of uh, physicians who've engaged in misconduct over the last couple of years, well, maybe for decades, but reported over the last couple of years. Uh, names like Reginald and Haddon in New York, um, uh, Heaps and uh, Tilden in California that engaged in medical misconduct. And you ask yourself, how could they have been doing this for decades? And the reason is, that nobody, no non-victim uh, wants to speak up because what will happen to them is what happened to me, which is essentially one of the most academically accomplished radiologists in the world, but having false, phony, trivial charges made in order to get me fired to, um, I don't know if you want to call it cover up or ignore, but they ignored, and, and it would be true of all of these other programs, that these misconducts were going on for decades. Probably any of these ones that you want to uh, mention, if you, we don't have time to talk about them, to compare, but those misconducts would have gone on for decades. Nobody wants to speak up because if they speak up, they know they'll get fired. So in many respects, this actually answers a question that a the very famous, um, and this being the time of Olympics, it's not a bad um, segue, Ali Raisman, in describing the horrific misconduct of Larry Nassar at Michigan State. This was the uh, gymnastics coach who, uh, who, who abused uh, the women who were in his charge, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the story is quite horrific because of their age. Uh, the, um, he worked, he was on faculty at Michigan State, but worked with the Olympics, I think, certainly the uh, Women's Gymnastic Olympics. But this misconduct was going on for decades and nobody spoke up. So Ali, correctly, because she wouldn't necessarily know how these things work out in a university setting, you know, she has said on a number of occasions, if only one adult spoke up, this, she would never have met him. So the reality is, the real reality is why nobody speaks up is that they don't want to experience what has happened to me. They don't want to have their career destroyed. They don't want to be, because um, right now I'm in the middle of a whistleblower court case, okay? I'm five years into it, over $300,000 to carry it on to its logical conclusion because they can always, uh, they can always ask for um, appeals. So all, of the, all decisions can be appealed. So it will go on for 10 years. And after 10 years, even though this is so transparently obvious what's going on, because the judge is involved, and this is the amazing thing, 
the case has to be seen in Orange County. So if I was uh, accused of murder, which is where UNC Chapel Hill is, if I was accused of murder, my case would be heard in an adjacent county like Durham County. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, in this case, my case is heard in the county where UNC is the largest employer and where the judges involved are UNC graduates with, and one of them, his father was the academic, uh, the sports director for UNC. Judges are also elected. So who pays for their elections, but UNC as well. So my judges involved in this case are more as biased as if it was the mother of the uh, former dean of the School of Medicine. I mean, the level of bias is just incredible. I mean, the simple thing I'd like to have done is, shouldn't I have my day in court? Shouldn't I have the opportunity to have a non-biased judge? Why does the judge have to be a UNC graduate funded by UNC? Why can't it be an independent judge? I mean, these are the kind of things, I guess, that go on uh, uh, back scenes in many situations. It's probably not unique. But in, in- I, I don't think it is at all unique. I think that there's been a lot of bemoaning recently about how people don't trust institutions anymore. But I think if we have learned anything, well, among the many things that we have learned in the last couple years is that so many of our institutions are really rotten to the core in the sense that they they create perverse incentives. And of course, human beings uh, respond to incentives. And so if you have a system like that, you end up with a, a rotted out institution, uh, which seems to be the case, unfortunately, with so many of the of the institutions that are meant to serve uh, people and uh, just end up serving themselves. And maybe that is to some extent inevitable. Anything that survives is something that has adapted itself towards survival, which may not be the same thing as adapting itself towards survival serving a customer. Right. So I just want to, you know, uh, of course, you can imagine I'm quite impassioned on this subject, and I don't want to talk too much about it. But I would like to see that I serve as an example, as Gretchen Carlson did with victim whistleblowers, of non-victim whistleblowers. Because if you think of all of the misconducts, and we can include, you know, with celebrities and so on, no whistleblowers, nobody other than victims spoke up. And that's because nobody wanted their career destroyed. And if they want to contest it, oh, it's going to be 10 years and a million dollars. And oh, by the way, you're probably going to lose. So the system has to change, you know, and, and otherwise nobody on, will speak up. So we're if, almost, if, if you're fine, what with, can we do then about that here to end on kind of a positive? How do we how do we fix this problem? Let me give you some solutions. One obvious thing, if you think of all of these institutions, not all of them, most of them, they're state institutions. Well, what do state institutions have? But if you can believe it, sovereign immunity, which means by and large, they can't be sued for most things, can't be held responsible. So the first thing is, I thought we got rid of sovereigns in 1776. There should be no sovereign immunity. You know, isn't that the whole basis of the US? No sovereign immunity. And the other thing is that Attorney generals will uh, represent these schools. And again, in, in my case, for instance, the attorney generals and the assistant attorney generals, who actually are lying about my 
what I've done are representing the University of North Carolina against the only physician with the courage of probably 150 to speak up to defend them. So the public is paying to destroy the career of the one person who is defending the public. That that clearly uh, creates a, a a no win situation, and unfortunately, we we are um, out of time here on the radio show. Uh, unfortunately, there's lots more certainly that we could talk about. Richard, I want to thank you so much for coming on the program. And is there any particular website that you'd like to direct people to to learn more about either your suit or um, gadolinium disorder? Well, there is a nonprofit organization that's set up to, um, to actually to fund patients who have no money called uh, gadtrack.org. Now, I can also email these to you. I have my own website, but to date, I'll, I'll be honest, I have not mentioned this is the first time I've spoken publicly about the uh, whistleblower case. This is the first time. Because other than that, I didn't want to take away from the gadolinium story by then putting in this thing about whistleblower. I, I appreciate that. Um, folks can uh, check that out. Go to my website, and maybe mm-hmm. I will start writing about it. Excellent. I'll make sure to put it in the show links. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on.